What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. When you Google Catherine Mahoney, the first thing it says is Andrew John's ex-wife. But as I know nothing about the NRL or his career as one of Australia's biggest sports stars, this isn't what led me to invite Kath to join us on Human Cogs. Kath is an ex-publicist, writer, podcaster and super talented creative. And she had me rollicking on the floor with laughter when we met first time two years ago. Her warm, funny and relatable 2022 memoir, Currently Between Husbands, tells the story of her marriage and separation to Andrew, as well as the relationship insights gleaned before and after her relationship with him. As a self-confessed oversharer, not much is off the table. In this conversation, Kath reflects on how being a people pleaser has helped and hindered her personally and professionally, how being separated and divorced is both challenging and also freeing. She also shares some of the top tips that she's gleaned from interviewing over 150 guests on her fabulous podcast called So I Quit My Day Job, where she talks with career changers and how they made the leap. Kath reminds us that being yourself and being at ease in your own skin is the best roadmap to follow. She also acknowledges that this is hard when we are sometimes drawn off course by the needs and expectations of others and perhaps a fear of judgment or failure too. Yes, she is still currently between husbands, and yet she's so much more than that. Here's my chat with the always delightful and witty Kath. Kath Mahoney, we met at a Foxtel event almost a couple of years ago now in Sydney. And I think we were two minutes into the chat when you were telling me that you didn't want to have sex on top with the lights on anymore. And at that point, I said, I think I said, hi, I'm Sabina. <laughs> no, I didn't say any more. I said, I'm, I've just, I said, I'm, I'm working back up towards getting the lights off because I was just getting back into the gym because it wasn't that long. It wasn't that long after lockdown, was it? No. I feel like it was one of the first sort of functions I sort of got back, you know what I mean? When it we'd was. all really got out of, of lockdown again mm. and I was definitely not on top body bright lights ready. Not, are you ever? Uh, well, I was going to say, are you now? <laughs> no, but there's no one to sit on, so it's fine. <laughs> well, if I had someone to fit on, maybe I'd... Maybe I'd find like a really lovely sort of like a, a sort of like a mini sort of caftan just to my tummy sort of top. That's probably got a, a name like a top. <laughs> so is this covering your top half, this caftan, or is it oh. covering your stomach or your thighs? <laughs> Maybe I should just wear one of those things you see the Kardashians wear, like a middle sucker in her, <laughs> and boobs hanging over the top, 
front bits out. So basically, it's just holding my stomach in. Maybe somebody should, maybe should, someone should design that for this. Well, exact let's talk purpose. about that because, um, yeah. not, not now, but you know, let's put that on the agenda for <laughs> some, some shared ideas down the track because I like the idea of that too. Uh, so, uh, needless to say, when we met, you know, you deep dived right on in, and I've since heard you describe yourself as an oversharer. I think you've described yourself like that many times. What drives someone to overshare in general terms and how does it reward you? Gosh, I think I've I I think it goes back to my childhood where I was not, you know, the smartest. I wasn't the fastest, so I never got picked for anything in sport. I certainly wasn't the prettiest. I was the tallest at a time that you didn't want to be the tallest because all the other girls were kind of smaller and and whatever. So I think for me I worked out pretty early on that if I if I said stuff, it would make people laugh. You know, if I kind of did the oversharing, which you don't even know is oversharing when you're eight or nine, do you? You just kind of, it's probably called showing off, mm-hmm. my mum would probably call it. Um, it sort of stemmed from that and just that great feeling when people would laugh. And my best friend, Zoe, who we, we partnered up, you know, when I was eight and she was nine, she was a year above me and she's still my bestie. There was nothing better than having her in fits of laughter, usually followed by Mahoney. You can't say that. Like I just loved it. So that's how my oversharing started. And how has it continued? I don't know. I mean, I suppose obviously writing a very overshary book, um, having various podcasts where I overshare, I've I've had great feedback from people who've said, oh gosh, that happened to me too. Or I don't feel so weird or, or that made me laugh, but actually that's already, you know, something I've done as well. You know, I think it's that sort of normalizes stuff that's maybe not cool and, and sexy and whatever, but I've done it. And, you know, then other people go, oh yeah, me too. Mm. So it definitely connects us, doesn't it? When we hear some, and when someone is vulnerable and shares something like you've said, you don't want you're not comfortable with your stomach when you're having sex. Mm-hmm. I'm not comfortable with my stomach when I'm having sex. I wouldn't have just declared that, but because you did, I can say me too. So now everyone yes. knows that. Um, stomachs are not our finest. Our finest I do love a one piece. I love a beach one piece. Thanks very much. I don't even understand a bikini. So there's there's also... Save it, saving on fabric. That's all they're doing. Yeah, but I don't need to. I'll save no. elsewhere and I can help yeah. the environment in other ways, I'm sure. <laughs> There's this sense of um, validation and connection that goes deeper than just making Zoe laugh. Yeah, I guess. Um, Or am I psychoanalyzing and you're just, you know, um, you're just telling gags? Oh, look, I definitely, it's definitely probably a validation thing. And continues to be, you know, and I'm, I would certainly put my hand up and say, you know, I'm definitely a people pleaser and I like to be liked. And I'll remember the one nasty thing someone says to me out of a thousand lovely things other people do. Yeah. What's that called in your terms? Well, let's, let's go there because where do you think you learned that? Where did you learn to be a people pleaser? And what, again, I mean, I I think we, we are rewarded for what we've done in our younger years in some way. Sometimes those rewards don't serve us well, but Mm -hmm. we get something back. You know, rat with cheese, I call it. The the rat hits the bar, gets the cheese. It just keeps going back for the cheese, even if the cheese ain't no good. Mm -hmm. So So you're you're okay, right. So I'm the rat (laughs) and I'm going in for the cheese. The Um, cheese is pleasing others. Yeah, 
I think it goes back to what I said before. You know, I wasn't the prettiest, smartest, tall, you know, I was the tallest, which was awkward as like a giraffe. Um, and and so that was that was a way of getting validation, I think, from my peers. It was certainly a way of getting validation, um, you know, to it, when you're trying to have your early romantic uh, relationships. What about in your family? What about in your, have you got, what, tell me about your siblings and growing up. Mm, I've got, um, I'm the eldest child. I've got, yeah, there's uh, a, a lovely brother, James, and my sister, Sarah, and mum and dad. I know I've actually sat on a sofa with a psychologist talking about this stuff. I just, I don't know. I had a really lovely, normal kind of growing up scenario, to be honest. Dad was away a lot with work. Um, you know, as dads were back then, would be up and out the house before I got up. And then, you know, would tend to get home not long before I went to bed. So yeah, I'm not I'm not really sure where the where the people pleasing. I have I have asked. Who have you asked? <laughs> and, Yourself? Um, no, I haven't. I don't really think I don't think I overly people pleased at home. If mm. you ask my parents, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. like, so more, more I think it was more out more out and about. And it might have just really come down to, you know, just that whole not looking like the other half the, the size of me, cute blonde girls in my class, I suppose. Yeah. Just feeling like I was a bit different. Yeah, so a way to fit Whereas in. Now I'm all right with being a bit different. Yeah. Now I love my curly hair. It's yeah. great. You rock your curly hair. I think often what we write about, what we talk about, what we what we get paid for, but but certainly what we talk to our mates about is what matters most to us. Mm -hmm. And when I look at what you've put out there in the world, you've put out currently Between Husbands, your your amazing book, you've got your podcast, So I Quit My Day Job. And so between those two stories, I want to just deep dive a bit. Let's start with um, So I Quit My Day Job. So your Mm -hmm. podcast interviews um, some well-known people and not well-known people who Mm -hmm. have made a significant career change, right? Mm Mm-hmm. How is that relevant to you? You started life, I know, as a, a publicist and, and was wanting to birth the book. And so that mm-hmm. was something of the change. But tell us a bit about your early career moves, even pre, pre-publicity. Um, hmm. I grew up in South Wales, um, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, had a fantastic drama teacher called Mr. Roger Bunnell. It was a small school, like 400 kids, a comprehensive um, in South Wales. And he just, when you walked into that drama studio and all of the blacked out curtains and suddenly, you know, you were just, you could be anywhere in the world. And he was such an amazing teacher that you felt like you could you could be anything and you could do anything. Um you know, and so many kids have gone on to do amazing things with him as a as a reference point. You know, Rob Brydon, the very famous comedian and actor, was at our school. Uh, Ruth Jones, who's half of the Gavin and Stacey, James Corden, you know, show that, that I'm not sure how big it was in Australia. She went to my school. You know, he's got people who are in Emmy award winning shows. Um, you know, Hugh Jackman's manager in the States is a Welsh boy from, you know, like this is all wow. thanks to Mr. Bunnell because you just, he just gave you that anything's possible. So I love that. I love that kind of, it's okay. It was still at a time where there weren't a lot of options that weren't your, your traditional job sort of, I suppose, you know, op- 
paths when you, when you left. Um, media studies had just started. So I went to university in Manchester and studied media studies, which my dad used to joke at the time because he's a civil engineer and very, you know, facts and figures and numbers. It's like, oh, it's a bit of a Mickey Mouse degree. <laughs> and it kind of was, you know, the internet hadn't started then. You know, we were we did, we had a radio station on campus and we did a magazine and we did TV production. And it was, you know, my, my work experience was, um, three months with Lynn Frank's PR. So Lynn Frank's is, um, a PR firm that absolutely fabulous was based on. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, them, uh, Jennifer Saunders character was Lynn Frank's mm -hmm. and it was very, very public and Lynn Frank's knew that. So it was very much like that. And I remember working my first big sort of project we worked on as we launched the Virgin Megastore. And I had to look after Richard Branson for the event. Um, and some of the, some of the musicians that were playing. And I just remember thinking this, I want to be in this world. I love this world. I can't sing and I'm not in front of the, the but I want to be like, I love the adrenaline around that. So, so that kind of, that happened. And then I took a really sort of a bit more of a safe media sales job, which was exactly not what I wanted to do, mm -hmm. but you leave uni and someone wants to pay you money and you can start paying off your student loan. I was like, wow. So I did that. Then I moved to London to a similar role, met an Aussie, fell in love. Two years later, we came back to Australia together. And that was a real, I hate to use the word pivot, but that was a pivot point for me because it was like kind of being back in Mr. Bunnell's drama studio where you went, hang on a minute, I don't have to have very much money. I don't think I'm here for long. No one knows anything about me. And why don't I go for something I really want to do? Um, you know, so I got a, a journalist job at a, a music newspaper in Brisbane, which was like a free paper. They would have had them all over Australia. And I also started to do some um, work experience in at Sony Music up in Brisbane. And then, you know, six, eight months later, a job at Sony Music Sydney came up. You know, next thing I know, I'm saying yes to a job. And the first big thing that we do is Jennifer Lopez is in Sydney. And, uh, you know, so I suddenly felt like I just, I don't know, I just, I would never have had the balls or the tenacity to do that in the UK. And there's something about going somewhere else in the world mm that kind of gives you permission to... You're anonymous. Why not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just give it a go. feel a bit like I never look back after that. Yeah, that that's something there about that you don't need to have a fear of failure because nobody mm. knows who you are. No one's going to yeah. judge. If it all yeah. goes pear-shaped, you just, you know, cough politely and move on. Yeah. Low risk. I loved my time in the entertainment space and I worked I worked at Sony Music for a long time and, you know, in amongst there, you know, fashion designer and I was at Channel 9 a long time. I think what changed my trajectory again once I was in that and I wanted to do more was the fact that I was married to Andrew Johns, who was obviously a big rugby league superstar and often headline, not necessarily positive headlines. And so suddenly all of these things I wanted to do next, which was because I realized my oversharing worked really well in Australia and it was making lots of people laugh and was part of my charm as a publicist. Suddenly I couldn't do some of those jokes because then it was attached to him. Mm. So then everything got really small again in a creative space, I think, for me. Um Obviously, then we had a beautiful boy, Lewis, who's now nearly 15, but you, you, go on a, you go on a different sort of path then as a, as a mum and, and coming back to work, you know, in a, sort of in a more of a part-time role. Um, 
And so one of the things I am really grateful for the marriage ending was I then just had that freedom of being, I'm, I'm sod it. I'm going to do it. You know, what, why can't I, um, you know, and, and I think that's, that was how a lot of my part two started, which is really exciting. How, how long were you and Andrew married? We were married for, I think it was nearly eight years. We were together 13 years, which was, I think, a fair whack. Mm. I think when you're with someone, it, you know, like that, I always laugh and go, it's sort of, you know, 13 years, but like 30 years in dog years, you know, it felt <laughs> like a long time. We went through a lot of stuff, a lot of public stuff, a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Um yeah, so it felt like a good it felt like a good run and there was a lot of love for a lot of time and there was a lot of bumpy bits, you know, as anyone I think whose marriage ends can uh, you know attest to it's it's good until it's not good mm. and then it's really time to, you know, say goodbye. But yeah, that that really opened up that year that I turned 40 when when the marriage um ended 2 weeks before I turned 40. Yeah, look back now and yes, it was <laughs> It was um, all it was all sorts of things, but it was also like that kind of you know coming out of the cocoon at the end mm. of that and just going wow again. Just actually, it's part two. It's not the end. And it sounds like, although I think I read you said you were actually bonkers in love for thirteen or twelve, thirteen years. Mm. It sounds like there was a sense of editing yourself, and it's very difficult to know in a relationship how much we edit ourselves and how much we appropriately compromise another person's differences. Mm-hmm. How do you know which camp you fell into there? Oh, look, I think you know I was very much the publicist. And I was very much the peacekeeper, um, whether it was with whatever situation was going on. And I was the people pleaser, you know. And so I think whenever that, whenever the balance tipped or there was, you know, Andrew's quite public about having bipolar, whenever there was any of that sort of situation, and then I think you, as you do, and I think especially if you're, you've been in a relationship with somebody who has some mental health challenges, you pull more of yourself into them and that and trying to get it all on track. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think the balance in, in that relationship was quite off at times. And I heard, um, I heard Trini on a, this Diary of a CEO podcast where she talked about when all of that can get quite turbulent in a relationship. And it's not, at you, you know, it's your partner's got stuff going on. You do end up thinking, oh, you you kind of end up taking a lot more crumbs than than 50-50 without realizing. And they're not doing that. Mm -hmm. You're the one just happy to take less. So I think Mm. and I was 27, I was 27 when we met. Like I'd be a really be a different person now in a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why, you know, one relationship for life is is a challenge because we we change and ebb and flow along the way. Did he know about his bipolar diagnosis when you met or did that diagnosis come later in life? He knew he had he didn't have a label for it. And I think it was maybe something that was swept under the carpet a bit. Again, he was 27 when we met and a superstar and all the pressure on winning and winning and winning. Um, no one was talking about male mental health, particularly back then. Um, so it was all sorts of knots spoken about. Um, but it was 12 months into our relationship that the black dog diagnosed him with bipolar. Um, and then when you've got a diagnosis, at least you know what it is. So at least you know how to you know, how to sort of take it on. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was, a there was a lot there. And, and also I always say to people when it came to 
being in that relationship, whether it's a bipolar um, characteristic or not, I always felt very, very loved, you know, like an, in an intense way. I never felt anything but, you know, lots of love um, in that. And maybe that's the, maybe that's why you stay in a situation for so long because there, there is so much good stuff too. Um, but yeah, I think like a lot of people, 13 years down the track, we just, we, you change so much, don't you? Mm. You just, you change and you don't always change together in mm -hmm. the same way. Mm -hmm. What role do you think mental illness plays played in the end of your relationship? And I'm asking this question probably less about you because I know that how bipolar presents in one person, like I like to say, mm -hmm. if you've met one person with bipolar, you've met one person with bipolar as opposed to you've yeah. met them all. Same with any mental mm -hmm. um, illness uh, label, they manifest so differently. But how, how did it play out for you as the partner, not for Andrew? Um. I think as a partner, you need a lot of energy for that and the highs and lows that can come, um, which is fine. I, I feel like becoming a parent changed that. I just didn't have as much. I just It wasn't just all about me and Andrew. Mm. It was all about me and Andrew and a small person. And being the mum, you know, Andrew was super busy with his career and, and still playing. And then when he, no, he'd, no, actually he'd, He'd retired by then, but he had a massive media schedule and coaching schedule. Um, he was obviously the number one breadwinner at the time. I'd, I was on maternity leave for a year. Then all of your energy is is on a small person and also you're sleep deprived, you know. So all of that changed. Um, I, You know, yeah, I was going to say, I sometimes I think, oh, maybe because we had, we did, we split up for a short time when Lewis was about two and a half. And sometimes now as someone who's got an older child, I think that wouldn't have, that would have been a different experience potentially with an older child. Cause it's, you know, it's a, it's a lot with it, with a smaller person, the amount of time and energy and sleepless nights you have. But yeah, I, I think that was probably it for, for us. And we hadn't lived together until we got married. Mm. Um, only purely down to where he worked, where his team was, where I lived for my work, you know, how it all, it just, that's how it ended up. And, and so I suppose, yeah, you, that was, that was, a, that was a different thing in itself, suddenly living together and not having two spaces. I know you're here all the time. I like this TV show. You don't, you yeah. know, just the, yeah, life stuff. Kind of getting to know each other after you, after you get married. Yes. You know, and, and sort of, I don't know. I, I'm still really proud we did 13 years yeah. and I'm really proud that we have a beautiful son um, that that we co-parent really well. We're yeah, very lucky in that way. Well, tell me a bit about that because co-parenting or parenting post-divorce is not an easy gig. How do, you, how do you do that well? I think we always, we just always did. It was always, we were going to be 50-50. Lewis was five, almost six when we separated. So he wasn't a babe in arms, you know, he was at daycare or so he was at school by then. Um, so we were, that was never a, an issue. We never had the big custody sort of battle. Um, Andrew's a brilliant dad. Um, Lewis is very comfy with him. We, we spent a lot of time as solo parents, even before we separated. So I think that was already a kind of, you know, that was already how it was. Andrew had been married before and had a, a son that, you know, he also spent a lot of time, but, you know, so he wasn't a guy going, oh, I don't know what to do with a mm -hmm, kid. Mm -hmm. Super hands-on. Um, and then we've been really fortunate, I think, that we, um, that Andrew's repartnered and she's amazing. And so there is just no, there's just no need to be, hmm. 
you know, we don't, t- it's, it's a text, you know, <laughs> we're not on the phone every day for half an hour. Let's not say we're, we're that, you know, our relationship is that because it's not. Um, but it's, it's amicable. Mm. And if there's a big question to ask, it gets asked and sorted. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think anyone listening who's going through a separation or has any of this stuff going on, it gets easier. The routine becomes the new norm. Um, it's all really clunky and tricky to start. And I think sometimes I forget that because I'm nine years down the track. Yes. You know, it wasn't always a walk in the park. And, yes. You know, and you, you, your child gets to an age where they have the mobile phone. You know, there's all, sometimes you you don't need any contact and not because you're being, you're, oh, I'm not speaking to him. It's just, you don't need the contact with your ex. Mm. Um, and so, no, we, we were always good and it was never, well, that was your day. So if you can't do it, you lose that day. Mm. You know, it was always like, okay, you can't do it. Oh, great. We'll just swap that. Mm. And as it is still now, so... That's good, I think. I think the research, uh, there's recent research I read that um, said that usually within about 18 months of separation is when a couple will settle into uh, finding a way of being with each other, a new way of being. And Mm -hmm. if at that sort of 18-month, two-year mark that hasn't happened, then it possibly is heading for a a rocky road. But it usually takes about that long to re-navigate new roles and new Mm -hmm. ways of communicating. So, yeah, yeah, I think it is a hopeful message for you to be Mm -hmm. talking about. I know it's a long time ago for you, but if you're in the thick of it, as you say, you can't imagine what you'll be like in nine years' time having the ease that you're describing in that that relationship. And then you go on to write currently between husbands, which is largely about your relationship with him and also some of it about your son and your family, your family of origin, your parents. And I wonder how you consulted with them, if at all. It's your story. This is a Mm -hmm. question I ask many guests because I haven't worked this out. In a therapy setting, Mm -hmm. um, in my clinical work, of course, people are free to explore and share all of the people in their world as openly, as um, candidly, as rawly as they need to. When it hits a public stage like a book or, you know, pod chat, I I don't have the answer. I wonder how you navigated. I went gently, I suppose. With my parents, um, they knew that I was going to write the book. And so I would sort of ease them in with conversations and, you know, they know I'm an oversharer. I just said to my dad, "You, I probably just wouldn't read it. You know, it's you know probably best." But isn't that is that red rag to a ball? And he's like, "What's in yeah. there? What's in there?" No, no, he's really good. And to this day, he's not read it. My mum read it and loved it, which I thought was great. A couple of bits, she went, "Oh," and I was like, "Well, you know, you you knew what you're getting, Anne." And I I just I said to her and my dad, "If I'm going to write this." The the main reason I wrote it, and I guess it's, first of all, I'm really glad I wrote it quite some time after the marriage ended, because I think I could come at it um, with a different perspective, with a softness, with a how we are now, with I loved you very much and you loved me. Whereas if I'd written it really close to the end, there would be, you know, met Andrew, got married, and then all this bad stuff happened. You know, I would I wouldn't have been able to sort of fall in love with falling in love with him again almost. Um so I, I really think that was important when I when I wrote the book. I also wanted to write the book because there wasn't anything out there when my marriage ended 
that was the the kind of you know Bridget Jones gets divorced let's let's sort of laugh and cry along with Bridget and know it's going to be okay in the end there were a lot of great self-help books out there but there was nothing like that um and as as life after my marriage ended unfolded I just was like you could not make this stuff up this is like a bad movie except my life and so my my typical Oversherry half glass full was like, I was gonna turn this into something. And I and I and it got like I didn't have anyone in my life when my marriage ended that was in the same spot. Everyone else I knew was happily married or not married. You know, no one, no one had gone through what I had gone through. So there was no one to say, it's really shit for the first year. You are gonna do X, Y, and Z. Do not judge yourself on these things. Um, I had a lovely friend, Erica, who was in the States, who, you know, I, I talked to a little bit about this stuff, but no one day to day. And, you know, you literally, you feel like a tortoise who's had their shell taken off. Like it's you, but it's not. And it's all kind of new and, and prickly and Yuck. So I wrote it because I really wanted to let other people who were about to go on that journey know what was coming and and also that there was a lot of hope. So when I was telling mum and dad why I was writing it, I said, therefore, the woman or the man that I'm writing this for is going to need to know the horrendous world of dating, online disasters, all of that, and the good stuff. But I can't write like an Enid Blyton story. So, so to to be authentic, there's no bottles of pop and Mrs. Washalot and no, Moonface Man. Yeah. There's going to be like you know all sorts. And I said, and they are funny stories, and they happened. But I need you know I'm like, and I said also. You know, I, I turned 40 when I got divorced. I wasn't 95. I wanted to have sex again and can, will continue possibly till I'm 95. So there is going to be sex, warning alert. Yeah, um, till you're 95. I was like, come on. And also I think I, like the, the, you know, the premise of the story was you join me as it's all going tits up. And then I'm like, is, did I always suck at relationships or, you know, or was this my first big, you know, mess up? And then we kind of go through my dating disasters through the years and, you know, sort of first loves and whatever. And I did that for two reasons. One, I wanted to have that story. And secondly, whether you're married or divorced, we've all had a first crush. We've all had a first kiss. Most of us have had sex for the first time. And I wanted people to read it and be there again. Mm. So, you know, when I mentioned the Madonnas and the Wham, you know, to be in their own puffball skirts, going up to someone in a blue light disco, being shut down, you know, to go, oh, because you want someone to feel, don't you, when yeah. they're reading and, yeah. and have a touch point that maybe they were not married to a famous sports person, but they've gone through X, Y, and Z just like I did, mm. you know. So I think, I think that was that. But to answer in a very long-winded way, that's how I pitched it to mum and dad. The original title of the book was actually, I don't like cricket or blowjobs. Um, and that's what the publisher picked it up as until everyone went, oh, I'm sure that's going to go in the supermarkets. So we changed it. Um, but when I was coming to that sort of moment about that is the title I want, um, spoke to mum and dad about it. Um, and I didn't speak to Lewis about it, but I remember thinking he's the only other person I really care about. And I did think, I did think, well, you know, at some point he's going to have one and he doesn't mind cricket. So we're going to have to, you know, I had this. <laughs> have a blowjob, you mean? Yes. Mm -hmm. pardon. So anyway, it, it got, the title got changed 
the title got changed um and the i think the first chapter is actually called is is my original title and i explain where it came from and and why it got changed but does uh, does it stand true today you still don't like cricket and blowjobs no, so the reason behind that chapter name was back to my people pleasing and maybe how a lot of younger women are in relationships. I would meet someone and, you know, they'd be into black and they'd be into this music and that sport. And I'd be like, oh my God, I love black. Oh my gosh, I love Metallica. I've always wanted to ski, love that. And it would be like, oh, I love cricket, you know, in early days, once you've, you know, got a bit, once you've got under the covers, I'm good for a couple of head jobs, you know? Yeah, you can have all the whole works from the menu. Little do they know about five months in, oh, that's not just going to happen. Probably <laughs> not. Just stick it in. I'm not doing that. It's your birthday. Fine. I'll do that. So it was that kind of whole kind of, you know, it was like, actually, I'm 40. Actually, this is, I, I'm not into this. This is what I'm into. You what know? are you into? I'm, I'm into music and dancing and um, laughing and happiness. I don't know what I'm into. Friendships, hmm. exercise to a certain extent, just... Oh, no, I, I'm also, I think I love, you know, I love architecture and history and dorky things like that. You know, you, you do, you s sort of sort of pack away some of what you love, depending on what relationship you're in, I guess. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so that was that was kind of the conversations that were had with my family before the book. Um, I didn't, you know, I mean, Andrew knew I was writing a book. I didn't say too much that I had to be very respectful about how I wrote about him because, you know, it was like, this is my story, my take on it. However, you're also Lewis's dad, you know? So I kind of, I, I would touch on say the bipolar, but I'd be like, that's not my story. Andrew's already shared it, you know, that mm. kind of way. Cause I was like, it's not a book about his bipolar. It's mm. just this, this book. And now the title um, currently between husbands, of course, that infers that you plan to, or would at least like to get married again. How important is marriage to you? What does marriage represent to you? Um, commitment, I think. Yeah, I'd, I would, I would love, I am such a romantic, you know, I blame growing up in the 80s with all the pop songs with the promises of what you're going to have and forevers and, you know, all of that kind of dirty dancing <laughs> genre of, of TV, of movies that we all watched. And it was like, it's all going to be okay in the end and they'll be happy ever after, you know, so there's definitely that um, in my core. Uh, and I'm all right with that. I love romance. I absolutely lo I love being in love. Um, and yes, I would like to get married again. Mm. I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not asked about, you know, the big day and all of that banana stuff. Um, I feel like I've done that. Um, but no, I, the commitment of two people saying, yeah, let's do this. Plus I'm 40, 49 at Christmas. I mean, someone's probs only got 20 good years in them. It's not like it's forever anymore, is it? It's just for the rest of it. The oh, rest 49. of our time. I mean, 49, you're halfway, you're halfway there. You've got a lot of good years left, a lot of good years on exactly. top with the lights on. Well, a good, yeah, good few on top if someone just arrives, yeah. And are you dating? Uh, is there any any progress? Did you just no look progress. over your shoulder before you answered that question? <laughs> <laughs> I think you were just looking around so like, like, I don't no, see them. No, there is no one here. Um, no, I mean, I was in a relationship for about four years that ended a couple of years ago, so... Um, so I feel like I've had a decent relationship, you know, since the marriage broke down, but no, it's been really COVID really doesn't do anyone any favors. No. And I'm, you know, I, 
I try, I go on the apps. It's not like I'm someone who's like just sat at home waiting for someone to knock on my door. Mm. But and no. Yeah, um, we no. talked about that on your other pod. I think I joined you as a guest with yes, Sarah. Yes, Sarah. Yeah. You, you gave me some of your, um, Yeah, I think it was, we had some vibrator stories. Yeah. Well, that, you know, they're, that's a given. That's there, you know, they're still going. Um, but no, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know. I go through phases where, not where I'm, I'm really ready. Like now I'm just like, I'm busy. My life is good. I would really like to not be the fifth or seventh chair at something. You know, I would really like to, to think about having a partner to go, I want to see the Northern Lights. Let's go. Mm. You know, so I do want a partner for that. But I've also reached a point where I go, I have a really full, lovely life full of beautiful people. And I'm told that's when they arrive, apparently, when you're really content. <laughs> but, but is there a sense that the world is Noah's Ark and you don't have a sidekick? Um, you said fifth and seventh not, chair. Yeah, not really. But I, I do think it's it's just more things like a Christmas, you know, where you think like this year I go, oh, I sort of thought I might have a boyfriend this year. <laughs> oh, he's still not arrived. You know, just those things. I don't know why Christmas. It just sort of, you know, like when there's a holiday or something, you just go, that's that would be good to have a person with me or someone to make a cup Can of tea. Can we blame Bridget Jones for that? <laughs> she was awfully focused on partners at Christmas. On, on holidays. <laughs> Any holiday event, um, but no. So yeah, I'd I'd love to say there was there was someone, but there isn't right now. But yes, I am I am open. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. In case anyone's listening, now um, back to so I quit my day job. I think you mentioned you mentioned Trini Trini Woodall yeah. in this chat already. She's going to be an upcoming guest. Have you spoke? Have you yes. recorded with her, or you you've got a date no, to record? No, that's next month. She's um, we're recording. But I met her yesterday when she was on a Sydney tour and went to one of her lunches that she held. And she is what a powerhouse. What an inspiration. And what a, a what a joy bringer! Like she just brings joy, happiness, confidence, and color to the world. Ooh, that woman, joy, happiness, confidence, and color. Like where do I sign? Yeah, yeah. who doesn't you want know? more of that? Exactly, exactly. And she's I don't know. I just I I I find her hugely inspirational. I think she's wonderful. And when you think about all the guests, have you had like a hundred guests on the on the pod? Oh, I've had like hundred and fifty plus. Oh, hundred and fifty. Yeah. Okay. Um, what are the takeaways? These are we. I always say we work for at least a third of our lives. So, yeah. um, what we do matters to who we are, how we <laughs> feel about ourselves, our sense of identity and purpose. Are there any threads or commonalities that you notice in all of these career change stories? Perhaps as I wonder if people look for something more meaningful in some way as they yes, progress. Yes, they, they do. Um, I think there's a few sort of threads. I think COVID changed how a lot of people saw things and the I've always wanted to do's became I'm going to do. And if I'm going to start a business, actually, I don't need an office and a shop front or a blah, blah, blah. I can do it from home and a laptop. You know, so there's a lot of that. I love when people say what they wanted to be when they were little and then somehow it becomes, as we go 360 with their story, what they do. Mm. So I love when when you can see someone's story because you, you're seeing someone's life in like 45 minutes an hour. Mm. So you, it's like a flip chart book, you know, there they are. But um, I had someone on the other day and she said she just was obsessed with hotels when she was a little girl. 
she then became like a registered nurse and then went on to be an interior designer um, and works in hotel spaces now. That's what they create, you know. Mm. So she sort of said she didn't really know why as a kid she was so upset, but that's how she's sort of, you know, where she's ended. Mm. My favorite part about the pod is regardless of what someone was and what they are now, is that moment where like they say, and then I did this. Everyone's face like just changes and there's this kind of joyful, childlike, because this they're telling you about something they do now that they love, you know, and, and they, it's sort of whatever it is, it, it it's, and some of these people are making loads of money and some of them aren't, you know, like you can see that it's just, it's not a monetary kind of sort of moment. It's just, I'm doing what I really want to do. Um, and I think when you do what you really want to do, you know, when people talk work-life balance, I think, I, I mean, I feel like I, I, the creative stuff I do, you just go, this, this is not work, mm. you know, and, and that's when you go, it doesn't, I don't mind if I'm doing it on a Saturday afternoon because mm. I'm actually writing something and I'm bringing something to life that, that might be in the world forever. Like, mm. that's awesome, mm. you know, so I think, yeah. Yeah, one of the questions I've asked many people, not not on the pod not on this pod, but in across the, the years is what did they want to be when they were little mm-hmm. or perhaps not what did they want to be because we might not have known what that was, but what did they enjoy doing with their time Yeah, when they could do anything? Mm-hmm. And often it's those things, whether it's, um, you know, playing with blocks or playing with makeup or hanging with friends or listening to music or um, often the verb that they use is quite telling for what it is that fills them up, whether it's creating Mm -hmm. or organising or connecting or joining or whatever it is. And I think we lose track of those things that we knew felt good when we were little because Mm -hmm. we might not have been rewarded for them. They might not have been seen as important enough. They might not have earned enough money. They might not have kept up with the Joneses. They might not have been what our parental, met parental expectations. And so we lose this part of us that is actually a core part of who we are Mm -hmm. to please other people to perhaps like cricket and blowjobs I always wanted to be Michael Parkinson yeah I just loved that he would chat to people and it was always funny and I loved I wanted to be and now I've completely forgotten his name Billy Billy Connolly they were the two because you know growing up in the early 80s there were not a lot of women on telly um but yeah Michael Parkinson and Billy Connolly Billy Connolly was just, I didn't even understand a lot of what he said because he had such a thick Scottish accent and it was a little bit age inappropriate. Yes. But I remember sometimes, you know, staying in the lounge and being really quiet when mum and dad were watching it and them not really noticing how it was time for my bedtime. And just thinking, like, I want to do, I want that. Mm. Like, I want to do that, you know? And so maybe that was my attempt of, of being, you know, funny when I used to do make Zoe laugh. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's what I wanted to be when I was was little. Well, you are doing that. Yeah. You're doing that I and feel then like I am. So, without the beard, without the Billy Connolly. Without beard. the beard, without the accent. <laughs> um, but you you are Parky and Billy combined with um in a female in a female form. What's next? What's next for you, Kath? I'm hoping there's more uh, with the Mamma Mia podcast, which is the 456 club I do with Narelda Jacobs, uh, where we really focus on things that affect women in their 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond. I love that. One season of that? We've done one season, so we're hoping season two starts next year. 
got a TV show idea that I'm pitching with someone else here in in Australia, which is which will be really quite lovely if if we can make that work. And then I'm writing a, a pilot script. Got um, representation in the states, which is awesome. So I'm writing my first pilot script for a TV show, um, and see if that lands anywhere over there. If they like a bit of British people pleasing showing offings. So that's quite separate, the two TV pictures, different ideas. Yes, yeah. totally different. One I'd be in and one I'd be writing. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, so you've got, a, you've got a lot of ideas. It's a, it's like the lights have been turned on, Kath, for you. Yeah. I've got you have so many more ideas. I had another idea that I pitched to my manager. I was like, I think this would make a great TV show that I would write. And she's like, yeah. So I'm. it's just doing it. And for me, it's going... Um, I've never written a pilot script, but then I think, well, I never knew how to write a book. I did, or columns, and, you know, so it's like, okay, it's storytelling, let's give it a go. With guidance, who shows you the way? I mean, you're a, you're a oh. wordsmith, you're a natural wordsmith and you're a natural communicator, but the format's different. Yeah, oh, look, we're early stages with the with the pilot, so my manager kind of goes back and forth with, with some kind of notes, as she puts it. Again, I don't know that I would have tried to do that, for example, in Australia. You know, it goes back to the, I moved from the UK to here and then other balls to be whatever. And then I literally got on a plane to go to LA and, and landed an amazing manager and she's like, you're really funny. This is great. Let's do it. And I'm like, yeah, you know, and I just, I, maybe because again, when you said to me, I came to Australia, I was anonymous going to someone pitching this, I'm not anonymous anymore. And for some people I am someone's ex-wife as opposed to, mm -hmm. you know, she didn't even know who he was, which is mm -hmm. awesome. Mm -hmm. Loved the book, read it in an afternoon. And I was like, you know, you know, so it's that, you know, it's that being anon you know, anonymous again, I suppose, isn't it? Yes, which I take back. I'm going to repeat what I said before. I think that's connected to no fear of failure. Hmm. It's freedom. Yeah. And you're on a roll. I know. I just, you know, I t it's so funny. When when that gets all, so all my psychics have said it becomes a successful TV show, it's funny. Um, it's that weirdness where I cannot wait to tell Mr. Bunnell, my 70-year-old drama teacher, hey, guess what I'm doing? Like he knows the other stuff, but like to be able to land, I don't know why, it would just be wonderful, you know, to go back and and say, I'm, you know, this is this is part of what you created. That is the gift that you gave so many children that you taught in that high school to just go, why not me? Mm -hmm. you and know? what a legacy. And I remember Oprah did many shows, didn't she, when she invited people to go and find their favourite teacher. And um, what a powerful thing for teachers to hear how much they yeah. change the trajectory of somebody's yes. life. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I love that you've stayed in touch with him. He must be pumped yeah. with what you're doing and the rest of his cohort who are all out there mm -hmm. around the world smashing it. Kath, we always end these chats with the same question that fits with the human cogs theme, I guess, amongst all the complexities and things that you and I've talked about today. Who do you think out there is doing human well? Mm. Gosh. Suppose I, f I feel really surrounded by amazing people who I think are doing human well. I really do. In in that kind of female space, I feel like there's lots of women in their forties plus that are just are just owning it. And it's that whole, you know, it comes back to love and kindness, doesn't it? Where where it's you gravitate towards 
or I gravitate towards the good, kind people. Mm. So yeah, I, I I don't know that I could narrow it. I mean, I I am obsessed with Ali Dado, as you know. I we spend know lots you of time are. You together. two are. You were having a love affair of next proportion. Oh, I think it's because I didn't know her. You know, she wasn't on my wall. <laughs> she wasn't. She wasn't a poster on my wall, and she was just someone I met later in life who's just full of love and kindness. I always come away from her going man, she's so much nicer than me. Like she's really kind. <laughs> we'll go past like a park like with loads of kids and I'm like, mm, I'm not really a fan of kids. And she's like, I love kids. <laughs> I'm like, I don't hate them. I just, you know, I love mine and my friends' kids and family kids, but you know, other people's kids when you're trying to have a quiet moment and they're scratching like, no. And she's like, oh, I love kids. I'm like, yeah, you're so much nicer than me. <laughs> well, I think it's, I think it's rubbing off on you, but I think you had it before you met Ali. I agree. Ah. She's doing, she is doing human well. She's an upcoming guest on Human Cogs as well. Looking forward to talking to her. But do you know what I've loved today, Kev? I've loved seeing a a softer, more more honest side because you're hilarious. You are such a funny human and that brings joy and fills my cup no end. But there's scope to be both, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think there is. Yeah, I think there is and there's there's more space for it and it's um yeah. I don't mind being vulnerable now and again. Yeah, and maybe, you know, I think if I had to pull the threads of this conversation, it's been about how to come back to self as mm-hmm. opposed to be for others. Yeah. And I see you doing that in spades. So thank you for sharing and for sharing something of yourself, of yourself. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. well.